The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Wrongfully convicted of his brother's murder, Sir Geoffrey Radcliffe, the owner of a coal mine in northern England, sits in a prison cell, helplessly awaiting his execution. But minutes before his date with the noose, he goes missing, as if he simply vanished into thin air. Not coincidentally, his final request was a visit by a Dr. Frank Griffin, the brother of Jack Griffin, who famously turned himself invisible before going mad and terrorizing the English countryside nine years earlier. With only days before his own madness will begin to set in, Sir Geoffrey must use his newly acquired invisibility to track down his brother's killer and clear his own name, while Dr. Griffin races against time to create an antidote to change him back. Hold on to your hats and join us as we discuss The Invisible Man Returns. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about the first of three films Universal released in 1940, The Invisible Man Returns, starring Vincent Price in the role that would kickstart his career as a horror icon. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host, the visible but always maniacal monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Man alive, jumping Jehoshaphat's. Two things definitely said in this movie. I'm doing good, Dan. <laughs> How are you? Doing pretty good. I don't know about you, but uh, I know we both live in the uh, the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, and we both are, I think, are experiencing some pretty turbulent weather outside, so it's almost like it's perfect timing to record this episode. Yeah, yeah. It's a dark and stormy night. What better time to talk some horror? And if and if there is an invisible man out there, we'd see him today, because uh, reflective in the rain. That is right. So here we are, back in the world of the invisible man. Now, with the major success of Son of Frankenstein, it was pretty clear that the public wanted more monsters. With three Frankenstein and two Dracula films under their belt, it was time for Universal to revisit one of their earlier properties. And what better place to start than with another James Whale film? But despite the title, there is no returning invisible man here. Having already exhausted everything in H.G. Wells' novel with the original Invisible Man, which ends with the death of Jack Griffin, Universal had a clean slate to create a brand new story with an original cast of characters. And while it doesn't quite make the most of that potential, you know, containing direct parallels to the original film and there are some unmistakable attempts at replicating that trademark James Whale comedy, The Invisible Man Returns does expand on the brilliant special effects that made the original so effective, and it shifts the concept from one of straight-up horror to something more like a murder mystery, 
which I found to be kind of an interesting choice. So Mike, since The Invisible Man is our mutual favorite of the Universal Monsters, I'm really curious to know what you thought of The Invisible Man Returns. Yeah, well first I was uh, happy and surprised that they went with Invisible Man next. I thought for sure we would be getting another Mummy movie. They would just kind of go in order in how they released them originally. But no, I was very thrilled to, to see this one coming up next, and I had never seen this one before. So we are uh, kind of at a milestone here. I'm in uncharted territory, as it were. I really enjoyed it. It has its issues, no doubt, but I still liked it a lot, and I kind of was getting into the shift of it not really being all that much a horror movie. I mean, we kind of talked a little bit last time about how it was a little more of a sci-fi idea. Um, it was definitely horrific, you know, like there were horrible things going on. Lots of deaths in that one and, and murders and things, so it fits the bill. But this one was more, like you said, like a murder mystery, maybe something closer to like a noir at the time, maybe even. And I think it still works. Like, that's not my... Those aren't my problems with the movie. It's sort of like... The <laughs> The direction of the story, the direction of the plot, the ideas of the how they continued on, so forth and so on. Like, I, I actually really like that kind of stuff. I have minor issues, but those aren't them. I really like this one. I think on my Letterboxd review, or when I logged it, I think I gave it a 4 out of 5, which I think is pretty good. There's no denying how derivative it is of the original Invisible Man film. I think they were really trying to recreate all the stuff that made that one so great. And like I said at the beginning, you know, there's there's, there's a lot of places they could have gone with an Invisible Man sequel, and to stay so close to what they had already done is a little bit of a disappointment. However, I think that this one mostly succeeds, all things considered, and I think that the special effects taken up another notch really helped keep this one so i would say a must see in the universal studios monsters canon yeah the special effects again i feel like are gonna be the star of invisible man movies up until the modern day even like they're awesome with the new the new one even and hollow man i keep going back to that old favorite and everything but that's fine that's good because it functions within the story really well they're actually necessary and i think that they do some really cool stuff in this there's that one scene at the end that's really shocking where he's just sort of the headless man at one point mm -hmm, i was like wow mm -hmm. that could just be its own movie just a guy without a head I think they did a good job being as little as derivative as possible. Like, it was smart for them not to have the scientist Griffin's brother be the Invisible Man. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of like right, interesting right. how it's one step removed now from the source. And I kind of like that as we get this new guy, the friend of the brother of the original Invisible Man who is using the formula and stuff. So it's kind of cool. It's like we got this outsider now who's like given this thing has been done to him that he hasn't even two things have been done. He's accused of murder and then he's turned invisible both without like any of his consent or doesn't know what's going on. So it's fun to sort of follow this guy around as a character too. So the strength of the character, the strength of the effects have been like the backbone of the Invisible Man series so far. Yeah, and it's funny that you mention film noir because I was thinking about other movies like this that like it just it reminded me of and like DOA comes to mind. I don't know if you've ever seen DOA. Yeah. Later, kind of remade as Crank, where a guy has like 48 or 24 hours to live. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I had to do some sort of reverse engineering to get there because as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, this is basically a Jason Statham movie in 1940. And then I remembered, no, there's there's DOA, which was the film noir that came. It came after The Invisible Man Returns. And there's Dead Heat with Joe Piscopo, also yes. quasi-based on that movie too. <laughs> so yeah, and the fact that the protagonist, 
he has a sir before his name, right? So he's not like some blue collar worker, but he is for all intents and purposes within the story, kind of a, a normal everyman. He has this done to him as opposed to the original Invisible Man who was a scientist who basically experimented on himself. So I like that this perspective is a fresh perspective. This character like is really just using this invisibility as a means to an end, as opposed to it happening by accident. He knows ahead of time what's, what's in store for him. Like they know already that madness is right around the corner. So he's got to work quickly. So yeah, I actually don't mind at all that this sort of ventures away from horror as a genre and, and sticks more to murder mystery. I, I like that perspective a lot. That is a lot of noir, is just like mistaken identity or the ticking clock accused of murder. Like, you know, I've been framed, you know, like that, that to me right. like screams it. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's cool how well, like they're able to make that shift and make it work. So they must've been making these movies without the horror banner attached, right? Like you mentioned DOA and stuff sure. like this was a genre unto its own. So they were kind of mashing it up here and like cross blending it. And, it, and they picked the right monster to, to kind of do it with. It's funny, too, because there's even a shout out to sort of say, like, this isn't a Dracula movie, right? Because the guy's like at one point, oh, why do you think he's going to come up and bite you on the neck or something like that? Like, And I was like, oh, that's that's kind of cool because they're even in a way maybe acknowledging they're not doing that this time. Yeah. Well, let's get into the background of The Invisible Man Returns. I was really interested to learn more about this because really all I had known going into it was that it was like the first real horror role, quote unquote horror role, that Vincent Price had in his career. And of course, we know him now. His name is synonymous with horror. Icon. That's really all I knew going into it. Now, I had seen this before, but aside from Vincent Price being in it, I didn't really know much else about it. So now at this time, I realized we're getting into sort of the start of Universal becoming this monster movie powerhouse. You know, they were making other horror films at this time, but I realized in my research here that this is one of three movies that they put out in 1940. Now, uh, they also released another three movies in 1942 and again in 1943 before Top out at four monster movies in 1944. Okay, this is the Kevin Feige effect. Like, he's done his yeah. research. Like, this is a model that has been resurrected in the modern day, and, and that's that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really I'm really curious to see why the only one movie came out in 1941 that was The Wolfman. So, I mean, it, what a hell of a movie if it's only going to be the one. Yeah, launching a whole new monster. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, when I saw just how many sequels and or just films in general were crammed into this couple year period, it's just it's astounding to me. And this is the sort of the beginning beginning of that, or at least maybe you could credit The Son of Frankenstein with being the, the beginning of that. But anyway, Universal knew that they were going to make this movie as early as March 1939. They had announced it just about the time when Son of Frankenstein was really proving to be successful. Now, by early May, they had attached a German director named Joe May, and they had also sort of been considering Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi for the title role. But days after they announced Joe May as director, the studio decided they were going to go with Son of Frankenstein director. Director Roland V. Lee as producer-director, with a screenplay to be written by W.P. Lipscomb, who at that time would have been known for his screenplays for Les Miserables in 1935, Tale of Two Cities, also 1935, and Pygmalion, which came out in 1938. Oh, so big, big into the adaptations of sort of classic literature there. Yes. Now, of course, neither of these two would ultimately stick to the project. Lipscomb was replaced with Rebecca and the Blue Lagoon screenwriter Michael Hogan, but again, he also would not remain attached to the film. By the time they were about to go into production, Universal did eventually settle on Joe May to direct, and May brought in his friend Kurt Siodmak, 
who came from Germany. He was the brother of director Robert Siodmak, and he was going to write the screenplay with Lester K. Cole. This turned out to be a really huge move for Kurt Siodmak because he would go on to write the screenplays for The Wolfman, Invisible Agent, and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, as well as receive story credits for The Invisible Woman, Son of Dracula, and House of Frankenstein. Wow, cool. We're going to be seeing his name show up a lot in the next couple episodes. He's their guy now. That's cool. I like that. I'm a bit more optimistic hearing that because it feels like they got a guy who's going to try and, you know, maintain some order throughout, you know, the next few years. As Maybe not as far as continuity, but perhaps as far as like tone and look and, and other kinds of things. That was Universal's game. You know, we talked about that in the Son of Frankenstein episode, just how they wanted to make their productions faster, more cost effective. Maybe Kurt Siodmak was was part of that solution, you know. They, they had him come around for six total movies. So, yeah, I'm curious to see, as we go through these, how he manages to leave his mark on each of these six films that he's... or seven films he's credited with. So by the end of June, Universal had announced that they were looking for an unknown actor to play the title role. They had decided not to go with Karloff or Lugosi. And they were specifically looking for someone who was young and good-looking, despite the fact that they would not be seen until the final moments of the film. That's the best. <laughs> like, let's get Ryan Gosling and never show his face. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that logic still holds true. Because if you think about The Invisible Man that came out in 2020, I remember like them casting Oliver Jackson Cohen as Adrian Griffin. I mean, he's in the movie in the, in the, in the final like minutes of the film. He's also like super hot. And, and I remember, you know, I, I wasn't, I'm not familiar with him at all. Before the movie was coming out, I had seen on Twitter, you know, people who were familiar with him. They're like, why are you going to cast this, like, the hottest guy to play a guy who's going to be invisible the whole movie? So, I mean, for as long as there have been invisible men, I feel like that the trend is just to keep casting super gorgeous men. It's just an interesting logic, like, that my mind is can't get around necessarily. But I understand it works so well at the end of this movie. We'll get to that where it's like Vincent Price is extremely dashing. Like, I'm sorry, Claude Rains, yes. but, like, Vincent Price in this movie is like, what? Because he doesn't even have his mustache. Like, he's super young. I'm like, wow. Yeah, okay. I get it. <laughs> right. Now, eventually, the top three roles were filled by the lead actors in Roland Lee's Tower of London, which was a universal production as well. It went to Vincent Price, of course, Nan Gray, who we saw in Dracula's Daughter, if you remember her. Yeah, she was the model, right, that was found on the bridge? Yes, she was the female victim in Dracula's Daughter, and I think she's great here. Of course, the third lead was John Sutton who plays Griffin, this to Griffin, Frank Griffin. I was partially just thinking Peter Griffin the whole time from Family Guy. <laughs> and just the other half, like, dude is sporting one of the most amazing mustaches. Like, it's like a Tesla mustache or something. Like, he was giving me, and he's a scientist. Maybe they've fashioned a bit of him off of Tesla. It's possible, I suppose. But, like, I was getting heavy vibes about that from him. <laughs> Yeah, I think if we were to do a ranking of best mustaches in these Universal Monster movies, John Sutton would be very near the top of my list. I don't think I've really ever seen one quite like that, except for maybe on some interpretations of um, Inspector Pierrot, is it? Hercule Pierrot? The yes. The guy from the, uh, yeah. yeah, from like the murder mystery uh, shows and novels and whatnot. Like he, he may have at one point had a fine mustache like that, but otherwise I was like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Funny that you mentioned Hercule Poirot. Uh, I, I remember it was it um, in the Murder on the Orient Express with Albert Finney. I think of that that moment in that film where Albert Finney is like going to sleep and he has like a little protective cover over the mustache. The stash net, so good. 
I wonder if, if John Sutton had to wear one of those at night before coming to set. Those were probably all over the men's locker room at the Universal lot because mustaches <laughs> in the Monster series have just been like second to none, like as far as my enjoyment's gone. It's just it's just awesome. Also of note, veteran actor Sir Cedric Hardwick, who plays Richard Cobb in the film, he got top billing. He would have been the most noteworthy actor at the time. I know he was in some high-profile films before this, so maybe he, he negotiated and got top billing somehow. But, I mean, he is the film's villain, so it's not completely strange, but also, you know, I can't think of anybody else in the, in the cast, in the principal cast, who would have been able to leverage top billing, you know, other than Cedric Hardwick. He's great in this. I was fooled for the first half, but, like, I figured it out right before the movie told you, you know, it was like one of those kinds of right. moments. And I was like, oh, nice, cool. Like it played out very well and, and like nice and cleverly and everything. And I, I thought that they did a great job with that character and with that part of the mystery Be because they sort of start dropping clues about him when he just like blurts out his feelings for Helen at one point. And then you're like, hmm, okay, uh -huh. he's involved. I don't know how deep it goes, but we'll get there. <laughs> So I just want to mention uh, one more cast member that caught my eye because this is one of my favorite performances in the movie, maybe my favorite performance in the movie. And when we get to the sequence, it's one of the like weirder sequences in the film where it just kind of stays with this character, becomes his movie for a few minutes. But Alan Napier is in this movie. Yes, Alfred. Alfred 66 from Batman. Yeah, absolutely. And like what made me more excited than just usually seeing him pop up somewhere I wasn't expecting is like we mentioned Cesar Romero recently on the podcast as possibly you know playing a character in one of these movies as well so that's right it's just crazy how like 26 years later they're gonna cross paths you know in costume on the set of yeah. Batman and it was just like such a cool thought yes I didn't catch that until you said his name and I didn't realize that he was in this movie I don't know you saying his name out loud it, it, it finally made sense I didn't recognize him in the movie because he's quite a youngster at this point still and he's got a lot of coal all over his face and makeup and stuff but in one Batman episode he plays his own cousin who has this like same Cockney accent it must be very close to his original accent or something like that because that is what I'm that's all I can think of now is like when I watch Alfred in Batman I'm gonna be seeing his character from The Invisible Man Returns. <laughs> that's awesome. Initially, the budget for The Invisible Man Returns was $253,750, and the shooting schedule was to last 27 days. But just like every other Universal horror production up to this point, The Invisible Man Returns had its own share of problems. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't as catastrophically bad as some of the other productions we've talked about, but, you know, it had its own issues. In this case, it was largely due to director Joe May's slow and overly meticulous directing style. So, with perhaps one of the more impressive exterior sets that we've seen thus far. Universal transformed their backlot into a northern England mining town with a full-scale reproduction of a colliery, which included a 75-foot-long coal escalator leading to a platform that was 40 feet high. Already, Universal's kind of throwing a lot of money into this production, and to their credit, I think that this mining set, like the colliery set, I think it looks pretty good. I would venture to say that it's probably one of the more impressive full sets that we've seen up to this point. Yeah, so it definitely fooled me because I thought that was a real coal factory that they were filming at that like maybe was just down the street from the studio 
Like, yeah, I was totally taken by it. Absolutely. Like, this felt extremely authentic. I think part of what makes it feel a little more real is we're not cast by so much shadow. You know, again, and I was thinking it's not really appropriate for it to be in this movie. All of that kind of German expressionism, right? It's kind of, it's not (laughs) here. It's more, this takes place way more in the real world. And I think that was a smart decision to go with. And again, like, money well spent, it tricked me. Oh, definitely. And I, and I think main protagonist, notwithstanding, this is one of the most, maybe the most blue collar film we've seen up to this point. You know, most of the characters in this movie that are not principals are, you know, working stiffs. And I think it was smart to invest that money in, in, a, in an outdoor set that looked so realistic. I think everything up to this point has either been a matte painting or a model or, you know, individual rooms, you know, so I know Dracula's castle was made up of these individual rooms, but to have this full exterior set built, I think, again, might be the most impressive set we've seen built to this point. By the end of its second week, The Invisible Man Returns was already way behind schedule and they hadn't even done any of the special effects shots yet. Those were being saved for the end. Uh, And by early November, the cast and crew were working well past midnight to make the deadline. And I remember at one point reading that a studio executive made a visit to the set and director Joe May declared, quote, I will not work as long as you are on set. And when pressed for an explanation, May said, quote, either you leave or I leave. And the executive, of course, responded, well, you leave. It's okay with me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry, but you're not exactly, you know, James Whale, Joe May. I'm sure you're a fine man and everything, but like, who's throwing their weight around (laughs) like that, you know? Yeah. So, of course, May had to swallow his pride and then beg for his job back. Man, Dan, just real quick, because these stories kind of like get better, not maybe not better and better, but they keep coming every episode, right? And I love it. And I just need the movie about the behind about the making of each of these movies like there needs to be a series like that on netflix or something starting with junior coming in and like giving the keys and starting up with with uh dracula ending you know where we end at the end at the number 30 31 or whatever like i would love to see universal the series or whatever during this time in history it's just so crazy i can't believe anything ever got done (laughs) oh yeah there are always characters, you know? There are as many characters behind the scenes as there are up on the screen. It reminds me of From the Earth to the Moon. Like, every time they go to space, it's a whole new cast of characters and astronauts and, and people and everything like that. Yeah, obviously some are more colorful than others. But, I mean, this movie, which admittedly it doesn't have a ton of, uh, of behind-the-scenes, like, mayhem to tell, it does have its share of characters. And I would definitely love to see, like, a movie with Joe May just, you know, struggling to make this movie and the studio just trying trying to like, come on, man, we gotta, we gotta wrap this thing up. What's taking so long? You know, like, I would love to see that. Anyway, the production finally wrapped on November 11th, 1939. At that point, all that was left to shoot were a few days of effects footage, which would be supervised by our man, John P. Fulton. And all told, the crew worked at least 15 days until 10 p.m. or later, with the last day of shooting stretching to 4.45 a.m. The final cost of the film was $270,000, more than $15,000 over the original budget. Ultimately, though, The Invisible Man Returns was a success, netting $815,100 and resulted in another Invisible sequel later that year. The Invisible Man Returns was also sort of remade by Universal in 1951 with Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, which we will eventually get to, and was also remade as a Mexican film entitled El Hombre que Logro Ser Invisible in 1958. 
which strangely enough took the ending from the novel The Murderer Invisible by Philip Wiley, which also influenced Universal's original Invisible Man film. We got to start keeping a list of, you know, extra episodes that we want to get around to. And that movie has just made the list. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm not really familiar with many Mexican films, particularly from this time period. So I feel like that's one we definitely need to do a bonus episode on for sure. And lastly, The Invisible Man Returns is the second Universal Monster film to be nominated for an Oscar. In this case, it was, of course, for Best Special Effects. It was one of 14 nominees, including Rebecca, and ultimately lost to The Thief of Baghdad. Rebecca? The Hitchcock movie? Huh. I have to rewatch that. Maybe there were some crazy optical effects in that movie. I can't remember, but interesting that there were that many movies nominated in a single category for the Academy Awards and people go out of their minds if there's more than like six Best Picture nominations or something these days. <laughs> yeah, so I, I looked it up. It is the 1940 Alfred Hitchcock film, Rebecca. And when I looked it up just to see, you know, what it lost to and what some of the other nominees were, I, it blew my mind that there were 14 nominees for Best Special Effects and that this didn't win. Now, I haven't seen The Thief of Bag dad so you know i can't speak to whether or not it deserved to win or not but when i look at the advancements john fulton made in the in-camera special effects that he did for invisible man and now the invisible man returns he's really growing as an artist here as an effects artist and there's some stuff in here that was i thought was really impressive especially for 1940 the reason i think thief of baghdad might have won and i wasn't even aware it was from 1940 i thought it was from much later is because it was a color film and it was sort of instrumental in utilizing the first blue screen effects, if I remember correctly. Okay. This might have been obsolete by that point in a weird way, if you know, if you take my meaning. Doing it in black and white, okay, that's cool, but we're going to do all this stuff in color now, and we're going to have a giant genie, and he's, this kid's going to fly on his magic carpet and all that. You know, they go full tilt in that movie, pretty much. But that's wild. I didn't know that was 1940. And then again, you know, Wizard of Oz was the year before all this, and, you know, those... Of those effects aren't shabby either, right? I mean, pretty good stuff there, right. too. So. I'm familiar with the Black and White Thief of Baghdad, but I have never, I don't think I've ever heard of this 1940 production. I'm looking at it now. You know, it is in full color. Conrad Veidt is in it. Oh, we know that guy. We do know Conrad Veidt. It won three Oscars. Best Cinematography and Best Art Direction. Okay, yeah, so all pretty effects-driven sort of categories. Yeah, so I guess it would have been no great surprise to anybody that this film won the award over The Invisible Man Returns. So I guess I can't be too salty about it. No, I mean, at least, look, it's... I think it was an honorable nomination. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, well, if we don't nominate this, not that it doesn't deserve it, but like the first one should have gotten all the awards that year, you know, down the line. So it's just like, we got to recognize. Yeah, I don't know that special effects were necessarily a category when the original Invisible Man came out. I'd have to, I'd have to look that up. But they could have squeezed it in under like cinematography. Or maybe, yeah. Especially, you know, just because the cinematography of that film is so much better than the cinematography here, I think. Um, but we'll get to that. And I think I just, the cinematography in The Invisible Man Returns, for all of the time it took for Joe May to direct this movie, I think a lot of it looks kind of uninteresting except for the effect shots. Yeah, I had sort of a similar feeling to Werewolf of London, right? It kind of had that kind of 
house style to it as it were maybe right. or like just not that not what you think of as like top tier like they, they didn't get full-on artistic with it this time around right right let's get into the film itself so of course we got this brand new universal screen that we got to see in the son of frankenstein i love this almost disco-y uh, superman-y looking theme i don't know no you're right it looks like a disco ball but it sounds like superman's about to show up <laughs> So if we're going to talk titles here, though, I think that the title card for The Invisible Man Returns is actually pretty fun. Like, you've got this sort of re- reverse shot on a black background. There's a vial keeping in with the uh, the sci-fi element here. And the title sort of crawls out of the vial and assembles itself right on the screen. I think that's a pretty clever title. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they've played with the actual text before in a title screen yeah it kind of reminded me of stuff like the thing right john carpenter's thing kind of thing i like that and then i also loved how it it was like a sequel to the invisible man Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's right this is a sequel not just the invisible man but they they say a sequel to hg wells the invisible man so they even credit the author here and so the film opens at Radcliffe Manor. It's a very foggy atmosphere. This is very much the, the like sort of horror atmosphere we've grown accustomed to. Visually speaking, this is maybe the most horror-y this movie feels. You know, like it, you get the fog and the, and the it's dark out. And um... anyway, we fade into Radcliffe Manor, and pretty much everybody, like the help, you know, like the butler and the the woman who works in the kitchen. Everybody kind of works in Radcliffe Manor, talking about our protagonist here. They've established that Jeffrey Radcliffe or Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe, has been convicted of murdering his brother Michael and that he is to be hanged within a couple of hours. But gauging from this conversation, basically everybody, except for this one asshole, is like, there's no way he could have killed his brother. We get a real good sense that Jeffrey is innocent without even having to hear from him. You know, like, he's innocent. Something funny has happened. There's no way he could have done it. And I I like this scene a lot because it establishes quite a bit and the next scene will do the same it'll just keep setting up the exposition here but this is very much like a very james whale sort of scene because everybody in this scene is like a working person you know i love these like local townies that are that are sort of colorful characters i gotta be honest like when this movie started i was like a little confused i was like wait what's happening what's going on like what is this like it definitely is sort of a different style in the sense like we were alluding to earlier it sort of shifted and i think it starts here where it's like an exposition dump in a, in a way and not that it's bad but i feel like i've missed something already but that's cool because the movie knows i feel that way so after this i'm kind of going to get the same scene again with a different set of characters right because i think right. at first we have like the authorities talking about this guy Radcliffe he murdered his brother you know we're waiting for the reprieve the executions coming all that and then we go to his house and we meet like his girlfriend Dr. Griffin Mr. Cobb and they're all saying the same thing they're like you know something's going on we got to get Jeffrey out of there there's no way he could have killed his brother like something's happening we're waiting for the reprieve (laughs) they say reprieve a lot so I'm really digging that the one thing I'm not digging though is I really wish and this is sort of I was kind of Um, like hinting at this earlier too, one of the very few things that I wish we got in this movie was a shot of the man before he became invisible. 
just because like I feel like it follows the pattern a little too much from the first one in the first place by not seeing the main actor until the very end. And also, we're not even going to see Invisible Jeffrey for like a while. Like they're going right. to be talking about this guy I never met. And so that just also until we see the man in bandages, I'm kind of anxious you know i'm like where is he i'm a little confused and stuff um but that's not to say i'm not like enjoying it though i'm still i'm still with it i mean i get what you're saying about it being too similar to the original claude rains was not really an he was not an established movie star when he made the invisible man at this time vincent price wasn't really an established movie star yet so i get why the studio would want to keep their star hidden for as long as possible uh and i think that the anxiety you're feeling i feel it too and i think it's i think it's good you know, like, but, but again, I do understand your, your, um, you know, the criticism that it's a little too similar, but I like keeping the, the title character completely a surprise until the end. We in current day, we know who Vincent Price is. We know what he looks like. So it's not really much of a mystery, but in 1940, people would have been wondering the entire movie. Oh, who is this guy? What does he look like? I'm starting to appreciate more the idea of that gimmick, you know, sort of in the context of the time the film was made. You know, like you just said, like we have um, a reference for Vincent Price. And thankfully, I have like a wealth of reference for this guy, because to be quite honest, I didn't expect him to be the invisible man in the movie. I didn't think we were not going to see him the whole movie. I got it. Dan, I thought like he was going to be <laughs> the Cobb character or something like I thought for damn sure he was like the inspector or something there's no right. way in my mind i was gonna i was sitting down thinking wait a minute wait a minute it dawned on me like he's gonna be the invisible guy the whole movie okay it was i got over that like rather quickly because the movie is so it's so good you know like it doesn't matter and once he shows up like you know i love vincent price so much i'm starting to recognize his movements his voice and all of this stuff and i'm, I'm into what he ends up bringing to the movie but it did take me a while to sort of orient myself this time fair enough fair enough one thing just to touch on you know you mentioned the way this movie opens you mentioned that it, it you kind of felt like you had missed something right because it just sort of throws you into the middle of this situation where you know the hero we haven't even met him yet people are talking about him you know we're getting this whole story about murder and his you know his brother's dead and did he do it and it's funny that you mentioned that you you felt like you were missing something because like i've seen this movie before it had been a while but as i was watching it i i did have this brief thought like did i accidentally skip a chapter at some point and not realize it you know like because I didn't remember it starting so, like, in the middle of this whole situation. Yeah, there's a part later, too, when we get to it, where it feels like there's a missing scene that was literally cut. Because at one point, he's sort of carrying Helen out of the room in disguise, and then in the next scene, he's by himself, and he makes a phone call, and, like, Helen's at the lab with Dr. Griffin. It's like, wait, how did that happen? Anyway, right. we'll get there. But, like, yeah. it keeps you on your toes in a weird way like that, that I wasn't ready for. Yeah, I agree. As you mentioned, the following scene after the scene with like the butler and the, the cook in the kitchen, uh, we have another scene that basically does the same thing. However, this scene includes like all of our principal characters minus our invisible man. We've got Richard Cobb and we've got Jeffrey's fiance or his, his love interest, Helen, and their friend, Dr. Frank Griffin. All three of these characters are introduced in this scene. And in addition to getting more context about Sir Jeffrey and and how, you know, he couldn't possibly have murdered his brother. You know, we kind of understand the dynamic of these three characters as well. Richard Cobb is 
Sir Jeffrey's cousin. Like I said, Helen is his love interest, Sir Jeffrey's love interest, and then their friend is Dr. Frank Griffin. So is Cobb also sort of like, he's got a interest in the coal factory as well, right? He's something to do with the company, right? Because he's trying to take it over. As the movie starts with Sir Jeffrey in prison awaiting his execution, Richard is like the heir for this company. So he's really just waiting for Jeffrey to die so that he can take over. That's it it is, yeah. And so, I mean, we're jumping ahead, but his whole plan is to frame his cousin for the murder of his brother so that he can inherit this company. That's one crazy family. <laughs> <laughs> Very Shakespearean, you know, like not something that I never thought I would really say about like a, a Universal Monsters sequel, but it is, it's got shades of Hamlet here. That is true about a sequel. You're right. Like there's <laughs> something about that. But again, if it, it almost feels like they took a script that they were going to make and just put the Invisible Man in it. Like, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It feels like they know what they're doing, you know? So even if I feel like I'm left out in the cold for a minute or two, it's coming around to me. It's all intentional. This is all the movie making me feel this way intentionally. Oh, definitely. And so within this scene, Richard tries to pull some strings. You know, he's next in line for this collier. So so, I mean, if it stands to reason that he would have some pull in local government. And so he gets on the phone to try and get Sir Jeffrey like an appeal or, or, or something, you know, at least buy him some more time. But there's really nothing more he can do. So he says. And then in the following scene, we follow Dr. Frank Griffin back to the prison. As it turns out, Sir Jeffrey's final request before he is to be executed is a visit with his friend, Dr. Frank Griffin. And that is the last anyone sees of Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe. And for those of us paying attention, you know, if we were realize that uh, uh, Frank is the brother of Jack Griffin from the original Invisible Man, we know where Sir Jeffrey is. He's no longer visible. So this is something I didn't even think of until it it's just now coming up. Do you think this might have been the plan? Or do you think Griffin was just like, this is a last resort, like, I gotta do this to get... This has to be that, right? Like, I don't think Jeffrey knew this was coming, right? Like, I'm wondering now, you know what I mean? Like, I'm wondering if they had this planned out or not. It feels a little also like Ant-Man, where, <laughs> like, Scott's in prison and the ants show up with the suit, and it's just like, okay, like, we're just making this up as we go along now. It strikes me as entirely thought out and intentional because like after Jeffrey is like after he escapes, he immediately goes to this safe house where Helen is waiting for him. Oh, yeah. And he has like that little box of clothes that's left for him in the woods, sort of like a stash. Right. Yeah. Right. So they definitely had planned this out. I don't think it's by by chance at all. I think he at least like he knew that Frank could at least buy him time with this invisible serum. He had limited time. He was going to go mad if they couldn't reverse the serum in time. Like, he was taking a major risk, if only so that he could buy himself some time to clear his name. I don't think at this point he knows that he has been framed, but he definitely wants to clear his name there. Yeah, and it's also like, you're going to die anyway. They're going to hang you, right? So it's either you're going to hang tomorrow or you have a week to go insane and try to clear your name and then also find an antidote, you know, which hasn't been around. Right. Like, we've been, this guy apparently he's been trying for nine years uh we'll find out in my favorite scene with the guinea pigs and stuff but like <laughs> like uh it's quite a risk but you're right like it's 
why not do this? Yeah, I, I like the motivation here and everything is sort of clicking together well. Yes. Now, I love this scene that follows. We don't get to see any of the conversation between Jeffrey and Frank. You know, it's just Frank goes in and then the clock turns and it's a few minutes before execution time. The guards go into the cell and Jeffrey's gone. And we get our old pal, Billy Bevan, as one of those like inept prison guards and he's telling the whole story about how you know we, we were sitting here and he was talking to us and then he went over here and then next thing we knew like he was gone you know he just vanished into thin air and what i like about this scene is that like the chief inspector from scotland yard who's in that scene it's like he has seen the first movie already yeah like, yeah <laughs> Like, like he knows exactly what happened. Oh, what do you mean? Uh, Frank Griffin visited him before his execution, and now he's he's gone. I know what's going on, and so I I love this that both the, the audience and characters within the movie are aware of how invisibility works. You know, like it's like we all exist in the same universe. <laughs> yeah, it's really smart too. You know, it's like that's that's what I love so much. I guess about the sequels so far is that they acknowledge what came before, and if they're not not building on everything they're using enough and they're referencing the right stuff and it doesn't feel like it's ever sort of you know falling in the parody or, or not working for me and I'm actually quite amazed to be honest that it's all like been this enjoyable this far <laughs> you know what I'm saying like I just did not mm -hmm, expect mm -hmm. the sequels because sequels these days and trilogies and whatever like you know how many times are there five out of five or three out of three like there's always like a you know a part two that's or a part three that you know kind of isn't you know on par with the rest or whatever but like I feel like these are all holding their ground and doing it well and on their own and it's all been just like really cool to see that part of it yeah I have to wonder about having a character in the film like this you know this inspector because he basically exists in this movie to create problems for John Fulton in the visual effects crew you know like we can't rely on the same stuff anymore we know that he can be seen in smoke and rain and now we have to create this shit <laughs> What's also cool, though, is like, it's sort of like what they were doing at the beginning of Son of Frankenstein with Wolf, where he was like, you know, they still call the monster Frankenstein. They don't realize that's not his name. It's like, yeah, this guy saw all the movies. And he's like, he's like the he's like the Van Helsing of the Invisible Man, you know, and their version is sort of like Jim Gordon. If I can stick with another Batman reference this episode, sure. you know, we got Alfred and here we got Commissioner Gordon. Because what I love about this character, too, is like, he's going to be a really great inspector like he's not out to find jeffrey to like arrest him and stuff he wants to like help him and figure out what's going on and he's gonna wait till the end until all the facts are in because like Cobb's gonna start slipping and going nuts and things and like he's gonna see that like something shifty is going on so i think they use him really well i think he's really well written i really liked him Oh, yeah, he's he's like the breath of fresh air through this movie, because as as everybody else is just freaked out and terrified of the idea of an invisible man on the loose. He's totally calm the whole movie, you know, just smoking his cigars. And he's like, he's like, it's a matter of time before we catch him. It's not an if it's when. You know who he's really like now that I'm thinking of it. He's like, the, um, it would be like if, you know, the invisible man pulled his arm off when he was a little boy. And now he's out to protect the town from the invisible man <laughs> that he's all grown up. You know, it's like that. 
that sort of thing from Son of Frankenstein, yeah. where like the inspector there was like kept his cool, was calm in the face of supernatural troubles, and yeah, it's nice to have a level-headed guy because everyone's gonna start losing their mind in one direction or another, you know, whether they're worried too much or, or their, you know, conscience gets the better of them or, like, the serum is affecting them. Like, there are multiple levels of, like, disorders happening on everybody here. The following scene is that scene you referenced before where Sir Jeffrey, now invisible, is wandering through sort of like the wilderness and he comes across his hidden stash. It's a suitcase that has clothes, the wrappings, everything that he's going to need, you know, having just escaped from prison. And I love this sequence. I mean, there's really not much more to it than that. However, it is a pretty incredible effect sequence because not only is Jeffrey invisible, but like, I feel like John Fulton is doing a lot more here to establish the presence of an invisible man within this environment. I don't remember so many things moving independently before, like in the original film. I think like he's got he's got shrubs that are like like moving and branches that are lifting up and down and then the, the suitcase opens, the clothes come out. Like, I mean, it's all pretty simplistic to understand, but uh, if there's one thing that I love about this movie, and this, this is a good example of it, like I, I feel more than in the previous Invisible Man that there might actually be an Invisible Man in this shot because so much of it is moving independently. It's an incredible feat to make me feel that. And all they're doing is just lifting, you know, with, with little wires and stuff, they're moving the, the branches and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, and I really feel like maybe because these guys have seen were able to see the first movie and sort of adapt acting styles and understand be like oh i get it like i'm acting to nothing right okay because mm -hmm. and there's parts in this movie where i feel like the acting has really stepped up a notch like there's one moment when cedric uh, Hardwick is being sort of let out by the gun floating in the air and he does this mm -hmm. sort of take where he kind of like looks behind him or whatever and I'm, I'm like oh wait but there's no one behind him like it he just everyone is sort of selling it better I guess in a lot of ways and you're so right about just the set maybe that's part of like this is all a completely controlled environment so 100% of this must be rigged up and stuff right so like every little bit like everything he brushes against and there's even I'll notice there's some wire work later where guys are getting sort of tugged out of the way mm -hmm, as if to mm -hmm. be shoved and they really sell it great with the crowd work and stuff so they're not just relying on the sort of spectacle of for lack of a better term the, the green screen stuff right like the black mat stuff they're doing everything here yeah, there's some stuff in this which we'll get to where they have, like, our Invisible Man do effect shots in one shot with other actors in that shot. That, is, to me, is the most impressive stuff. I mean, I just highlight this one little moment just because it's like the beginning of all this other stuff that is going to be very impressive and it like really gives me the sense that there might be an invisible man here even though like like i said the the effects are simple to understand and they're not you know they're not very complicated visually it really really works for me in a way that it almost didn't in the original as much as i love that film yeah yeah i think maybe they might have not shied away from doing the and again not that it's easy but i want to say the the sort of less impressive stuff. I think in the first one, there might have been sort of more of like, um, let's 
put all of our sort of eggs in the bas- in this basket and pull off these incredible effects and stuff, and then we'll sort of do the rest as best we can. And here it just seems like they had the foresight to think of every kind of little gag or trick. And I mean, there's even going to be a stop motion animated rope tie sequence in here that, mm-hmm. that is just mm-hmm. gorgeous, you know? <laughs> yes. So smooth. Yes. So their minds were just sort of on fire this time around, and that might have cost them a little bit in a way. Like, I'm, I, I definitely applaud them reaching and stuff, but I also worry that, like, man, they just might have bitten off a little more they can chew here and there. Like, they, I feel like the right, first right. the first one is just so smart in picking its moments. Here, I think you said it, like, they're setting up that it's kind of going to be, like, nonstop. Like, every scene, you know, where you can't see him, you're going to feel him, for sure. Right. Definitely. So with Sir Jeffrey now uh, clothed, we check back in with Dr. Frank and Richard. And this, okay, so this is where the film gets a little bit clunky for me in just in terms of structure. Because in this scene, Richard confronts Frank, you know, knowing that he is friends with Jeffrey and that he has the means to have helped him escape. Uh, Helen has gone missing. And so... And so Richard kind of is like, hey, you know, where are they? Uh, I know you know something. You're acting too calm about this. Frank brushes it off as like, I'm just very busy. You know, you've interrupted me in the middle of this work. And then Frank establishes also that his family, the Radcliffe family, has funded this laboratory. You know, so this laboratory exists on the same property as the colliery, right? And I think they sort of make reference to Frank as being like a doctor for the men who work there because was it in this scene or the, or no, there's a scene that comes on later where he has instructed like nobody go down tunnel three, you know, cause that's where, where Michael was killed. And, um, you know, he doesn't think that it's safe. And so I think he has some pull here because he's like the, he seems like the doctor for the, for the men, but also he's working on these experiments on the side. It's a little bit confusing as to like what his, his role here is really. I don't think it's too complicated to, too, too much to believe that Jeffrey being friends with Frank would use some of his family, you know, money to fund his scientific efforts. Yes. Yeah, I think that's where I also got a little confused about Richard Cobb's sort of position. He's the one, or at least the rat, him, the Cobb Radcliffe's are sort of funding uh, Frank in his research, and he's given a lab on the property. And from what I've sort of made, made up in my mind or deduced or whatever from sort of the relationships in the movie, is it seemed that like Frank, Mike, and Jeff were like buds and doing business and like Cobb was around and stuff and they had to like deal with him but he was sort of on the outs and I have a feeling like Frank was you know like the the lead scientist there's got to be a you know when you're working in a coal factory there's got to be you know a lab I'm sure and science going on and all kinds of stuff about you know maybe trying to turn it into a diamond or something I don't know um, <laughs> what, what they're doing over turning coal into fuel in the lab and stuff uh, and then he also happens to be the brother of the Invisible Man, so that's his like pet project kind of work that they're also funding. That like you know is now in jeopardy because Inspector Sampson's like, don't you know the invisible secret that your brother has? And he's like trying to be like, no, that's my brother, that's not me. And then like even Cobb is like, you know, we don't really need to be researching your pet projects and stuff like that. Trying to sort of like put him in the hot seat about like spilling yeah. the beans about where Jeffrey is and everything. Like it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I mean that that's like basically the next scene after Cobb leaves. Frank gets another visit from Inspector Sampson who has like the same conversation 
conversation with him because the, you know once once Samson realized that Frank was Jack Griffin's brother, it sort of like you know oh I remember that guy like nine years ago who turned invisible. His name his name was Griffin. So we gotta go talk to him. So they have like the same conversation except we get a little more connective tissue to the original Invisible Man. We get like a case file with Claude Rains's like photo in there. Oh yeah, that was cool. That was very cool. Yeah, it was it was amazing to see like just that that continuity there, like just to see Claude Rains. He's not in this movie at all, but that's the one reference we see his photo. Like, oh yeah, I remember him. And by this point, I would I would think that he is uh, a bigger star, you know. So people would be like, oh yeah, I remember him. Yeah, and and now Frank is possibly an accomplice. They've got their eye on him. A lot more. Samson is obviously barking up the right tree. We as the audience, you know, we know that, that he is the same, of the same family of Griffins. But uh, yeah, I think structurally it, it seems strange to me to have two scenes almost back to back that kind of do the same thing. Well, I mean, what I like about it, it kind of is like the way the movie opened too, like I was saying, right? Where it's like you get the same event, but from two different perspectives and different yeah, characters. Fair. And you kind of get to see how they're affected by this news differently okay and like Cobb is sort of starting to crack and the inspector is starting to like crack the case yeah I like that about I think that might even happen again later in the movie too at some point um, with other characters or something but I kind of liked it in between these two scenes, we get a brief moment where we like are introduced to Willie Spears, who is uh, played by Alan Napier, as you mentioned. And we don't like we don't really get the details yet, but it's clear from this little interaction with the other men who work in the coal mine that he like I mean he looks like a drunk. But he wields some authority, and even the guys that he's talking to, like all the rumors are spreading, right, about everything that's going on. He's wielding this authority, and even the guys who who work there, you get the vibe that like they used to work with him, not for him, and now like they just have no respect for him, even though he has this authority that he's trying to to pull. You know, like so we get little glimpses of the truth here with this character, which we'll learn later. You know, he was he was given a promotion to keep quiet about stuff yeah he's the witness he witnessed the act go he actually saw Cobb throw michael down the pit or whatever <laughs> like, and, right and is now in on it all and everything uh, as long as he could keep liquored up he'll keep his mouth shut i guess that's right and so before we move on i wanted to just touch on the uh the scene with samson and uh and, and uh dr frank as we've established like it's, it's almost as if samson has seen the first movie he knows how to handle an invisible man and and mentions at the end of the scene you know he offers frank a cigar and you know frank says no i don't smoke but samson says you may want to start you know basically because uh the invisible man can be seen in smoke or rain it's it's almost like um like chekhov's smoke or, or rain you know like they mention it at the beginning and then it's going to come out yeah the smoke comes back in my two favorite scenes one's an actual scene which involves sort of fogging an area and the other is just the shot where it's literally like a reenactment of this shot and the cigar payoff where like he's right over the guy's shoulder like that was that made me legit i legit like got a jump from that it was very cool yes (laughs) Oh, and also, like, it's also very much playing off of the idea of his weaknesses are, like, elemental forces, right? So, like, smoke, yeah. rain, cold, all this stuff is, like, how you beat them. Yeah, I feel like if you were really into the idea of invisibility after watching the first movie, this movie sort of unromanticizes all of that, you know? Like, this movie really shows how difficult it could be to be invisible. Why don't you dip your clothes in the invisibility formula next, okay? So then you at <laughs> least have, like... 
one set and you're good to go. If memory serves that with like the other Invisible Man sequels, for the most part, it's about taking the concept and just changing the genre a bit or putting an invisible character into different environments, into different style stories. I mean, the invisible woman is, is pretty much straight up comedy, but then you've got invisible agent, which is kind of a world war two spy movie. Oh, I like the sound of that. Yeah. So like they don't really do a whole lot with the idea of being invisible. Like after this movie, it's all pretty much, okay, you get what it is to be invisible. Let's take that idea and put it into something, some other kind of story. So now um, we check back in with Sir Jeffrey here. He has uh, arrived at his safe house, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Helen is there waiting for him. The home belongs to a character named Ben, who is the game warden for that area. So he's like miles away from anybody. And if you notice, they call him Old Ben. Old Ben. Not Kenobi, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I couldn't help but think of George Lucas watching all these as a kid or whatever, and just this getting stuck in his head at some point, if he knew it or not. This character, like, they call him Old Ben. It reminds me of, um, for those of you who've watched Parks and Rec, there was the, the shoeshine guy named Old Ben. They were calling him that when he was tw when he was 20 years old and he hated it then. You know, like, this guy reminds me of somebody that had been called Old Ben for most of his life, you know? He's just like this this wild man out in the, in the wilderness. And he's going to prove to be a pretty loyal, uh, crazy old codger, as it is. Yeah, so he's not, like, the smartest guy, right? But he does his damnedest to protect our hero. So in this scene with Jeffrey reuniting with Helen... This scene pretty much is self-explanatory, but what I like about this scene is that we get to see Jeffrey like in his natural state of mind. In the original Invisible Man, we, we have to take on context clues that Jack Griffin was a kind man before he turned himself invisible, right? Like we only get that through other characters. Here we get to see this character be very sweet and loving with the woman that he loves. And we get to see the whole transformation, right? We get to see like little little glimpses of that in this scene. But I think this scene is useful if only for that. So we can see who Jeffrey is before he starts to go crazy. Yeah, I'm really glad they did this scene here because this is sort of the scene that I wanted before he became in invisible. Like, I thought that she would sort of visit the prison and they would have this, they'd lay out the love story, I'm innocent, It's I'm framed, it's got to be, you know, who could it be, you know, what can we do? So I'm glad that they're spending their time doing that here with these two characters. And you're right, like, I'm, you know, if we didn't get this, I'd be kind of grumpy for the rest of the movie because you're because we needed we need to see him before he goes insane and i really do get a sense of like casual jeffrey like you know like everything's gonna be fine don't worry like i'm i'm gonna figure this out we'll be all right all that stuff and then the dog's stuck and it's like don't damn dogs and like yeah. you see you know because we know we've seen the first movie and we're aware that he's gonna go crazy you start seeing it kind of like peek through but yes i'm i'm so glad that uh for all intent and purpose it's like this is how they were before like this is what they're trying to hold on to yeah, and I, lo I love that he's kind of a dork, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, it was so strange and surreal to see him flap about, like, in his invisible wear. Like, I don't know how yeah. else to put it, but, like, he's, like, so nothing, of you know? It was as if it was nothing. And then she catches, like, a glimpse of him and passes out or something. And it's just like, oh, right, like, I'm a monster. <laughs> 
So the other thing that this scene uh, establishes is this promise that he made with Frank that it, should he start to lose his mind and lose control of himself, Frank would restrain him uh, until a, an antidote could be discovered, right? So, so that sets up uh, a conflict later in the film. And a little bit of foreshadowing there too. We get that, that cool shot of him in chains and stuff. And the other thing this reminded me, Dan, that I don't think we've had for like maybe two or three movies is like a straight up regular good old love triangle <laughs> like it sure. is gonna yeah. turn out to be one of them again and like it's a, sort of feels like it's been a minute and i'm here for it you know like this one is working and i think this scene really sells it with helen her reactions to jeffrey and jeffrey you know trying to process it i think they're doing a great job of like showing they're they're together Yes, and this love triangle, I think, is the, like the dynamic between the characters. I buy the love triangle a little more, I think, in the original, maybe a little bit. Oh, yeah, because he comes right out and says it, and there's nothing maniacal behind it, right? Like, this is sort of drives the plot, is like, I'm going to kill your husband and steal you away, you know? It's like, I wish he had the chance to tell Helen. I wish Cobb had the chance to say that to her and see the look on her face and be like, why would you think I'd ever love you after that? And then him being like, right. well, you weren't supposed to find out about it. I was going to do it in secret. <laughs> yeah, I, I buy it a little bit less here, if only because I don't think there's any way that Richard would have a shot with Helen at all. Because he's basically the Kemp in, in this love triangle, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I think Kemp had a more legitimate shot in his situation than Richard does. But I kind of like that his, his involvement in this love triangle Angle is, is pretty understand. He's the villain of the film. We're not gonna like expect him to actually get the girl in the end. In that sense, I kind of prefer it here because it never really gets a chance to develop. Whereas Kemp comes across as kind of creepy, but he's not really supposed to be creepy. You oh, know, yeah. like it's just a matter of like really bad timing with that guy because he gets shut down immediately. Right? She's like, yeah. how could you possibly think of that right now? Like your best friend has gone missing. <laughs> like there's other yeah. things going on right now. We will get to that point. The next scene is your favorite scene, or one of your favorite scenes, where Dr. Frank is in the lab experimenting on his guinea pigs. Yeah, this is like full-on Hollow Man territory. They definitely watched all the Invisible Man movies and cherry-picked their favorite moments, and they expanded on this perfectly in that movie. But I, yeah, I love this. Yeah, this is another scene where the effects work is really not complicated to understand. Everything is on like, you know, it's like a motorized track or, you know, maybe using magnets. But I, I love this sequence, him trying to figure out the cure. I think it's effective. I think all of it is effective, except for one moment. And I don't know how they could have done it without actually killing a guinea pig. So I'm glad they didn't do that. But that awkward freeze frame to, to signify that the guinea pig had stopped moving and was dead. Like, that's the only moment in this whole scene where I, I just, I don't buy it for obvious reasons. But again, the alternative would have been to kill a guinea pig. So I can't be too critical. I guess this is pre-Muppets and Puppets and stuff. So like, you couldn't really do a very convincing, I mean, maybe Ray Harryhausen was running around doing stuff around here. They could have done like a maquette or something, like a King Kong type thing, like a stop motion guinea pig doing one last breath. But considering that amount of effort for what they were trying to convey, I don't know that it would have been worth it to Universal. It makes sense to me. It's really just the only moment in the whole scene, which is pretty much filled with impressive special effects, where I'm like, okay, that's, that's just, they just freeze frame the shot. 
the thing that like comes across as the point of the scene is like him testing and you know all it's like this guy isn't exactly the greatest guy like he's look at all these poor animals and i'm wondering what kind of animal is it that's the suspense for right. me where i'm like he's grabbing something out of a cage it's like one of those floating collars i used to see a great adventure as a kid right oh yeah you know you're walking the invisible dog oh, i had one of those when i was in disney as a kid you know outside the haunted mansion yeah yeah it's that simple and effective but like oh man it's all about about like what is the is it a dog what is it and then like you see the bones and you're like huh and then it forms around it and you're like oh shit it's like a guinea pig i'm like wow they just went with the literal guinea pig here in this scene and like yeah i just think like this is a very weird sort of horrific bizarre and cool scene like all wrapped in the one and yeah i'll be damned if it isn't why i love hollow man so much is because they take this to like as far as it goes you know this is like the whole idea is like we're gonna see a gorilla in that movie turn invisible and back again and stuff right so it's like conceptually i love it yeah, and we get to see something that we haven't really seen happen yet, which is like Frank is getting very close to a cure. We get to see him bring back something that is invisible and make it visible again. The only thing he hasn't achieved is the ability to do that without killing the subject. He's close. We know he's close to finding this antidote. So for me, I'm like, oh, we still have an hour of the movie left. I think he could do it. You start to feel hopeful. Dude, you know what else I'm thinking about are like the kind of horror of invisible animals running around loose from this lab one day (laughs) now that's like where they should have taken one of the sequels right it's like the invisible dog (laughs) (laughs) well i think after the invisible woman which you know when you get when you get a chance to see that i'm thankful they did not go in that route the next sequence we can get through like a bunch of this stuff all at the same time here we go back to the safe house there's a cop an old tiny bike cop He comes across the dog, uh, old Ben's dog, who he leashed far away from the house because the dog just couldn't stop barking the way dogs can't stop barking around things that are strange. Then Jeffrey wakes up from his nap. In the last scene where we saw him and Helen, like he sort of passes out. And we get one of my favorite effect shots in this movie. I don't think we quite got anything like this in the original movie, but we had something similar. This is the scene where Jeffrey looks at himself in the mirror and takes the goggles off and you can see through the eye holes to the back of his head in the mirror. Again, not complicated, but like, I just, I liked that effect. So many of these effects still work. Very unnerving to see like behind the bandage. There's also a nice mirror shot. And I think, again, what you're saying earlier too is like what's selling these types of effects, like the more complex effects, is they're more complex. Like there's other humans in the shot reacting to, whereas I don't think there was as many in the first movie. And so that just has to be logistically a lot harder. Yeah, in this same scene, he's speaking with Helen and she's getting emotional and he goes to grab a handkerchief and like takes his glove off in the same shot and then hands her the handkerchief and there's no hand there. So like now we're getting into, like I said before, we're getting into like effect shot territory with multiple actors, which we I don't think we've seen before. So this is like, again, just more really incredible, impressive 
practical effect work from John Fulton. But I think this is the scene where Jeffrey sees himself for the first time. I don't think he's seen a mirror since he escaped from prison. So like that moment for him is terrifying, just looking at himself, seeing through into the eye holes and seeing the bandages on the back end of that. And then of course, Ben comes in, says, jumping Jehoshaphat, which I don't think I've ever heard anywhere else in my life. I always thought that was just like something Bugs Bunny always said, but I guess that was a saying. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, we get more of Jeffrey and Helen here just trying to hold things together. That She's starting to feel the weight of this whole situation. He's starting to feel scared and that's transferring to her. We just get more of that. Yeah, yeah. And I start to realize that like the anger is what manifests as like madness, right? Yes. It's like he's so caring and emotional and stuff. And then even with the original Invisible Man, it's like it comes out in anger. Mm -hmm. And it's just like he goes from zero to a hundred within like a blink of an yeah. eye. And so like that alone is like very jarring and, and sort of scary to think about. And then so the police officer returns back to Ben's house with the dog. And then this whole sequence, you know, like as we said, Ben is trying to keep that cop from getting in the house. The cop knows something's going on. And, you know, again, Ben tries his damnedest to keep the cop out. But the cop does make his way into the house, comes face to face with our invisible man who sort of forces him out of the room, but only temporarily. But in that time, he manages to get all of his clothes off and escape. And the cop, when he phones back to his headquarters, you know, he speaks to Samson, who tells him, don't let him out of your sight. Do not let him take his clothes off. And he just laughs at that. Like, why would he take his clothes off? <laughs> He's in the presence of a lady, which I thought was very funny. But of course, he doesn't respect those commands. So by the time he gets back up to the bedroom, Jeffrey's gone. Uh, and then this is, again, mirrors kind of the original... It reminds me of that scene in the inn where, like, the cop gets threatened by the invisible man, and then the next time he goes up there, he's given him time to take the clothes off. This is sort of a lot of also the integrated comedy going on. Like, especially old Ben as a character is way over the top. All these situations, like, just missing the invisible man, we're sort of running through those same old scenarios again but i think it's working because they do mention it's nine years later it doesn't seem to be that common of knowledge it seems to be like something you could find out happened was that this guy was an invisible man and stuff but mostly it's probably like an urban legend so i could also understand people being like yeah that's why what are you talking about like he there's no way it's not unlike you know in ghostbusters 2 which was only a few years after the original and in, like in the span of a couple years there's still tons of people in new York that are like, eh, there's no such thing as ghosts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad said you're full of crap. This isn't the town of Frankenstein that never forgets. Yes. It's very clear that like people here just in, in this particular universe just did not take that news seriously. Only a handful of people knows that an invisible man is possible. To everybody else, it's just ghost stories. But I like all these gags along the way and stuff. Like, I think the comedy, I mean, I'm not laughing per se, but I don't think that it's taking anything away. It's not necessarily adding a whole lot exactly, but it's not in the way. Um, it feels very evenly balanced, you know, and that seems to be what they're going for instead of like James Wales is the kind of guy who's like, there's no such thing as a balance. We got to push everything. And there's just something a little more exciting about that kind of, you know, horror, comedy, whatever, whatever you're making at that level. What I really like that's showing up is stuff like the bike cop, that he's not on a horse, that later we're going to get a gun, that one of the Invisible Man deals is coming up. He's going to mess with a dude's car. It's kind of neat how, in a somewhat sci-fi way, they're playing on modern conveniences 
Yeah, oh, I can totally see that. Definitely. The next scene is the scene we, we sort of referenced previously. So Jeffrey has escaped this cop in the middle of the wilderness. Helen has returned back to Richard's home, where she was previously at the beginning of the movie. This is the scene where he sort of accidentally confesses his love for her. But the, like the second he starts to reveal his hand there, he kind of just explains, maybe you should go lie down. It's, it's really just important for that one moment. We get sort of a, a sense of what Richard's playing at with this whole scheme that he's got going on. I thought that was a good clue to drop then because it didn't make me think that he was the killer per se. It just made me think that oh, he likes her too. Like, I knew someone else. I thought it was going to be Griffin, but I knew someone else in this group had the hots for each other. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it sort of indirectly gives you more information about his whole thing, you know? Yeah, his state of mind, yeah. And so the, the following scene, I think, is a pretty great scene. It's the first time that Jeffrey and Frank have seen each other since the beginning of the movie. This is really where the effects shine, in my opinion. You know, this is where we're really getting effect shots with multiple actors, because Vincent Price did did do all of the effects shots himself. It was him wrapped in the black velvet. So yeah, he actually did all of those stunts himself, or I say stunts, but he did all the effect shots himself. Black velvet. <laughs> I could just hear him saying that in his Vincent Price voice. Of course I'll wear the black velvet. And just, and just doing it gladly because he loves making movies. I always got that sense from him. This is with the newspaper gag, and it's great. Like, this is so cutting edge kind of thing that I think you were talking about, where it's like fully interacting yes. two people that I don't think were there when they were shooting the scene in front of each other, but feels almost seamless. Well, again, in some of these shots, they had to have been. Oh yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix. But the ones that feel like the biggest effect shots, the timing and the angle of the shot and everything, like it had to be so precise. Like the mathematician on set, yeah. like where's his credit? <laughs> But uh, we know we get some great stuff here with uh, like sciencey stuff. Frank is somehow able to draw some blood from Jeffrey. Invisible blood for the first time. Very cool. Yes, and we get that moment where you know he's got this syringe. It looks empty, and he adds some color to like a vial, and then squirts the blood in there to give it some color. All just really cool stuff, you know. There's some wire work in there that's really cool. Yeah, you know what I liked about the wire work too. After a minute, it's like when I thought I saw the wire, you know, because these movies are cleaned up, right? For for us, like for DVDs and Blu-rays. Yes and no. Yes and no, right? So that's my point. Is like sometimes I think the wire is just film damage. There's something kind of charming about that, really, where it's like, oh, that's the effect. That's not like film damage. But in my mind, it's like, well, it's an old movie. I'm going to be seeing lines on the screen at one point or another. Some of those wire shots in this movie that the wires are clearly visible. You know, I think some of that is just really unavoidable. But then there's some where I cannot find the wire. Yeah, yeah. I still don't know how they got that gun to float so precisely. There had to be something in the other actor's jacket, back or something. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Like, I just couldn't figure that part out. Some of it was just like multiple wires to keep everything stable. So you probably had multiple, we'll call them puppeteers. And just keeping everything looking natural, I think, had to have been some sort of like Herculean feat. So whether I can see the wire or not, I don't really care. I know it's there, even if I can't see it. And the fact that they were able to make all the movement feel very natural is one of the more impressive things to me. So narratively, the importance of this scene happens next. 
we get a visit from Willie Spears. As Frank is trying to test Jeffrey's blood, we get a visit from Spears. And of course, Jeffrey remains in the room, invisible, listening to the conversation. And basically in this scene, we establish for sure that Spears has been promoted by Richard and he was a night watchman and now he is a superintendent. And that smells really fishy. And, and he's sort of leaning on Frank a bit to basically threaten him like, hey, I don't think we really need a doctor. I don't think we need to keep this lab around. You know, maybe we're just going to send you on a nice holiday. It's like, like, like mob stuff, you know? I was just going to say, he's like a button man or something. Like, I've been rewatching Sopranos recently, and this I got that exactly. Like, it's extortion or whatever. It's like, yeah, you know, we're just going to shove you out of here. Like, there's a new there's a new boss in town. <laughs> but Willie Spears is no Luca Brasi. He's no Polly Walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we, we established from Jeffrey, who ran this colliery before he was convicted of, of murdering his brother. We learned that he was a night watchman. Now he is a supervisor, and that doesn't really make sense. And as soon as Jeffrey learns that, he starts to put some pieces together. Something's definitely rotten in Denmark. So he doesn't waste any time. He gets into what I consider to be like the fun and games of this movie. Now he's going to start fucking with people. Yeah, this is like my favorite chunk that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. It's like this whole thing with messing with spears and stuff from beginning to end. Because it goes on for like a whole reel. Like it's a while. Like it's a it's a chunk. And then I was like, you know what this is? This is the murder spree of the movie. Right. Like only two people die in the story. One person's dead when it starts. And the other guy confesses before he passes away at the end of the mm -hmm. movie. So it's the man who gets it. The censors would be very happy about that death or they would not have anything to complain about that. Right. Death. And so we do this part of the fun and games kind of stuff is like when the original invisible man was like, you know, racking up the bodies, you know, this invisible man is just going to screw with one dude, but he tortures the <laughs> hell out of this guy. <laughs> it is so much fun to watch this stuff. I think I made a note as I was watching it, like considering what passed for pranks in the original Invisible Man, a lot of this feels very cute. Almost like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I think maybe because we've seen Jeffrey, or we, in quotes, we've seen Jeffrey be a sympathetic character in ways we never saw Jack Griffin be sympathetic, really. We know he's a good dude and that he's just messing with Spears. He's starting to go down that mania rabbit hole a bit towards the end of this sequence. But for the most part, like, he's not endangering any lives, you know? He's just having some fun with this character. Yeah, he's starting to show, though, that his cruelty is surfacing. Yes. You know, like, he's being mean to this. He's doing things that he probably wouldn't. But it's a means to an end as opposed to what the original Invisible Man was doing, just sort of like pushing old men off their bikes or like kicking ladies down a hill. Brutal stuff, like causing train wrecks. Yeah, there was a meanness to those acts as opposed to this, which feels more good-natured. It's a little more pranky. It's a little more sort of like too much tuna kind of going on here. Uh, but like, it's again, like there's a point to it as opposed to the previous one. This guy is trying to get information. He will get Spears to spill the beans by the end of this, you know? And like, that's the point. Whereas like, I feel like the original Invisible Man would just be doing it for fun. Right, right. So that, that's sort of like what I like about this is like the character still has that humanity in him. And like you said earlier, we see it slowly seeping away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And when it start, so it starts with him messing with Spears's car, which is pretty kind of funny in a way. But the scene ends with Jeffrey basically presenting himself as the ghost of himself. 
to scare the shit out of Spears. And as much as Alan Napier is like swinging for the fences with this performance, you know, it's pretty hammy and over the top. It gave me a pause a little bit, you know, like I'm realizing that he is legitimately terrified. And like, he's begging for his life. Even though we know Jeffrey's not going to, he's at least not going to kill him, right? We don't know if he's going to hurt him or, or, or not, but we know he's not going to kill him. But there's a moment where I'm like afraid for him because of how afraid he is. Yeah, I'm amazed by this sequence, kind of. I gotta admit, like, I think, you know, Joe May, my hat's kind of off to you because it starts off very funny. And mm-hmm. like, this is really cool. Like, they're messing with the car. Yeah. It's like an old-timey, like, look how you used to be able to, like, just see the engine, like, and pull the things out and, like, pop them back in and stuff. And it's kind of fun and lighthearted. But then this guy is, like, crawling for his life through the woods on his knees. And I'm like, I'm not, this isn't funny anymore. Right. Like exactly. This is now horrifying. Yes. <laughs> like, there's something, there's a switch. Something happens, and I don't know if it's just the performance or just the culmination of the sequencing, and it just keeps going on and on. But it's kind of chilling by the end of it. And it's what ultimately, at the end, I was like, this is probably what put me over the top. Like, I really like this movie. Yeah, I would say I would say it's a combination of Napier's performance and the contrast of the scene. But by the end of it, I can say like this is maybe the closest I get to feeling scared because we sort of talked about how that's not really a horror movie. It's more, you know, murder mystery. But like this is really where the horror starts to come out, even though we as the audience know Jeffrey is probably not going to kill him. No, but but I was shocked to see when we do see Spears again, the condition he's yes. in. I was like, oh, he's not dead, but, you know, he's as close as you can get. <laughs> like, he's in some kind of, like, freaking jigsaw positioning. <laughs> like, when I get back to that. By the end of the scene, we do confirm, or, or I should say, Spears confirms that Richard did, in fact, murder Jeffrey's brother, Michael. Like, all three of them. Let's see, we have uh, Jeffrey, Richard, Spears, and Michael. So all four of those characters were in this tunnel. I think it was, like, Tunnel 3. And Spears saw Griffin come out of the tunnel first. Richard came out second. And he had heard Michael call Jeffrey's name. So, like, he he was basically the witness to this murder. All but confirms that Richard is the guilty party here. Immediately rushes home and starts packing his bags. <laughs> who wouldn't? Who wouldn't pack their bags immediately? I like this moment in the movie, too, because it kind of, like, realigns, like, objectives a bit, right? Like, now Jeffrey has something to do. Things are now clear. There's a goal, which is cool. Yeah, we've gotten to the heart of the mystery. Now it's a matter of bringing the guilty man to atone for what he's done, right? But before we get out of this scene, you mentioned it before, as Spears is packing his things to get the hell out of Dodge, Jeffrey sneaks through the window and ties him up. He confronts him and ties him up, and there's a, there's a really fantastic stop-motion sequence there where the rope you know, wraps around Spears' legs and, and ties him up. That was so great, but, but how messed up was it that he lets Spears go, and Spears is like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm never going to do like another bad thing in my life. I'm out of here. Coast is clear. And right when you think the coast is clear, bam, 
He's like, oh, you didn't think like I was going to let you go, did you? It's like, oh my god, I would have shit my pants so hard. <laughs> that is so mean and like messed up and like that's crazy. To go that extra bit with the prank, I'm going to let him think that he's off the hook one last time and be like, nope. But we, we know he can't let Spears go because he's the witness. He needs that testimony to prove his innocence. But yes, I think you're right. The way he goes about it is kind of mean thinking, letting him think he got away. I'll give you that. Next scene, Jeffrey does not waste any time. He goes straight to Richard's house. And uh, Helen's there, of course. And there's this great scene where he confronts Richard in front of Helen. So cool, where he's like, he's there to see Helen, and then Cobb comes in and doesn't know Jeff's in the room. And they start talking about him and everything. And then he's like, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, and, and Richard's trying to get information from Helen, right? He's like, I want you to, like, tell me what happened. I know, I know something's going on. And just as Helen is about to spill the beans about Jeffrey being... Being invisible, he interjects. How about I tell you the story of what happened? Oh, man. So good. So he's there to get a confession, right? He's there. He lays this, this sheet of paper and the pen in front of Richard like, you're going to confess to killing my brother. Helen is not convinced. But, like, Richard knows Jeffrey's got the goods on him, right? Yeah, and isn't isn't this where a cop just, like, goes nuts and, like, starts shooting at him, like, all over the place? It was shocking. And he basically gives himself away by reacting that way, right? I, I love the sequence of shots there, right? Because Jeffrey is in the rocking chair, and then we've got Helen in the shot. We've got Richard across the room at his desk. He throws like a bust. It's one of those like little, little mini, mini, mini busts at Jeffrey and then just starts firing into the open air. The chair falls backwards and you're like, did he get shot or did he do so, sort of like a roll evasion move by falling out of the rocking chair or something like that? And then the way that Cobb is just firing like crazy, he looks like a, it's like a gangster movie all of a sudden with a shootout. I was not ready for that at all. And just again, just having the guns around these sort of like supernatural science fiction sort of things and stuff, it's just like grounding it even more, especially from today's perspective where like guns are so everywhere and stuff. It's just like, oh, of course, guns now, gunplay and everything. Right. And it just is all fitting in really well. Although, but the thing is this, the like cop, you would still sort of believe him at this point. You know, he's only shooting at someone who broke into his house from the cop's point of view. He does seem a little beyond shaken up about the idea that he just got called out, of course, so you could kind of like chip away at that. I think I think the inspector recognizes that. But this whole like scene is very hectic and very well done. Difficult to do a very well done sort of like commotional, uh, like a scene about like a lot of commotion going on, a lot of confusion, uh, but like it's very easy to read. Yes, and, and with the effect shots, it's very smooth. And we get the first shot, first of two, I believe, in this movie where an object is thrown at our invisible man and ricochets, you know? Like, so in this shot, he's hit with a bust later in the movie. I think Cobb throws a plank of wood at him, you know? So like in two shots in this movie, we have action, things are moving, and we also have to convincingly make it look like a physical object has just bounced off of thin air. Very impressed by this sequence. And then following, like as, Richard, as soon as Richard starts shooting, he's on his way out of this house. And we get another of the more impressive effect shots. He runs straight into Samson, Inspector Samson, always smoking a cigar. 
Yeah, that's like your crucifix. Yeah, exactly right. I, you know, I hadn't thought of him as as a Van Helsing until you mentioned it. And now, you know, it's like, yeah, the cigar is his, his wolfsbane or his crucifix. And as Cobb is trying to escape, Samson's still cool as a cucumber, you know, smoking the cigar. He knows like, hey, it's all right. You're not going anywhere. We're going to get this guy. And like, as they're having this conversation, we think it's a two shot. It's a three shot because Samson blows smoke over his left shoulder and reveals that Jeffrey is standing right there between them. And it's such a good shot. Dude, it's like I didn't want to believe it because like I couldn't believe the amount of detail they were getting through the smoke. Like they would try and do that shot today with computers and fail the way that they succeeded back then with practical effects. Like there's just something so otherworldly and like that should not be. But I'm seeing, you know, it was like you can't believe what you're seeing kind of thing. And like, I didn't really expect that moment to happen in Invisible Man 2. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I didn't expect it to be buried in this movie, honestly, where there is this shot that this is the shot that I was like, oh man. And like, it made me jump. I was like, they 100% got me. Yeah, and in this shot, and then the one that's coming up, which we'll get to, uh, I think you're right in that a modern day interpretation of this sort of effect, I don't think it would play better necessarily. Um, I've noticed like in these shots in this, and maybe it's by accident, maybe it's by design, I'm not entirely sure, but I feel like I get more detail. Like I, I can almost see that it's Vincent Price through the smoke. And then later we'll see like through the rain. You can sort of see maybe because of the imperfections of of the effects technology of the time as opposed to what we have today. But I almost like that, you know, you can see more. So I was almost wondering with the advancements of technology and and them knowing what they're doing and stuff, I wondered if for that shot and others, like they painted his face black or something as opposed to using like a black velvet mask to produce the effect shot. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. Yeah, because then you would get like all of the sort of curves and and detail of his face. Yes, the shot in the rain is not much farther. The only thing that's really separating these two sequences is a moment where the police sort of surround Richard to protect him. But the next shot, you know, it's pouring rain and the cops are all around this house and they know, they've been told by Samson, you know, like you'll be able to see him in the rain. Now, plenty of them don't believe that there's an invisible man still which I think is kind of absurd. But then there's that scene where Jeffrey tries to escape through like a back door and you can see his silhouette in the rain and you do see like a hairline, you see his nose. But the only way that I could I could conceive of them pulling off that level of detail is to actually paint him black, you know, like a matte black body paint. Which I actually really like. Because like I said, you can almost kind of tell that it's Vincent Price. I like how um, they call in the Invisible Brigade to uh, come guard Cobb. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's very similar. Like if we're following the parallel, right? Like in the original Invisible Man, Kemp was surrounded. Like he was the bait to draw in the Invisible Man. And they surround him with cops to protect him. This is They're doing the exact same thing here. Now, there's one drastic difference, which visually, one of the most striking things to come out of doing this series so far as far as I'm concerned, is like the cops come in, they're blowing the smoke all over. They're creating like a fog inside the house, right? So they have to be wearing gas masks, but they're wearing these gas masks that plug into like a ventilator on their chest. Uh And then they have these long black capes because bobbies and cops used to wear capes or whatever. But then they have their like sort of pith helmet on or whatever cops wore in the 40s and stuff. 
they look like Darth Vader's. Like, it is amazing. It is one of the coolest, like, steampunk Darth Vader designs I'd ever seen in my life. Now, I know Darth Vader is sort of, you know, more based on, like, samurai and, and stuff like that, um, more sort of Japanese-influenced visually and things, but, like, I gotta tell you, Dan, like, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was sitting there going, Darth Vader... <laughs> Yeah, this, I mean, just from a visual perspective, I think you're spot on. I've never seen cops look like this ever. The only other visual reference that I would have is like Harry Warden in My Bloody Valentine. Definitely warrants like this horror movie villainous kind of presence, you know? And and then to, on top of that, for them to be police officers in the movie is even scarier. And then they start looking in my mind like shock troopers or something right. like that also. So it's like very unexpected very cool very scary stuff like we've said our, our references for something like this are all like post 1940 right i have to wonder what audiences made of this visual in 1940 yeah they must have looked like robots there's no way they thought like i mean maybe but like i would as a kid i'd be like are those robots all of a sudden in this movie awesome <laughs> <laughs> and like also uh, watching this through a modern lens. I feel like I've seen a ton of movies. I knew exactly what was going to happen. Like, as soon as I saw that their full bodies and faces were covered, I'm like, okay, yeah, he's going to end up as one of those guys and get out of the house. And sure enough, that's what happens. And there's a fantastic effect shot where he, like, pulls in the last one behind everybody, you know, pulls him into a room, and then we know, okay, so he's going to be in this suit. He manages to escape with Helen. That's the point where I thought there might be, like, a missing scene. After he escapes with her... Jeff goes to make a phone call and he calls the lab and like Helen's at the lab. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, something, something's going on there. Like they could have used a, an extra scene or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So it's only really wonky because the transition is, you know, he escapes the house in the whole getup, right? With Helen. And then he's like crawling through the trees and he like sneaks into a house to use the phone. That's right. And there are cops along the ground who are shining light up into the trees. So he's not far enough away really from Cobb's house, but when he calls Frank, Helen's there just sort of casually, like she's been there for a while. It's not like she just arrived. So the timeline, you're right, doesn't really make sense. Makes me wonder if there was a, a deleted scene. Yeah, it's it's not the end of the world or anything, but I I did write down scene missing, you know, and in like a grindhouse way, like maybe it's lost forever. Uh, but a nice bit, Dan. I would I would be remiss if I didn't call out another wonderfully acting cat in the Universal <laughs> Canon here, where they think it's Vincent Price in the tree, and it turns out just to be a kitty. Of course, the cat performances are our favorite here on the Monsters That Made Us. That's our next T-shirt. So he sneaks into Frank's house and makes a phone call to the lab where Frank is hard at work on uh, a cure or an antidote. Helen's there and he arranges to have for the three of them to like meet, have dinner and celebrate. Yeah, did you notice in this scene that John Sutton started ranting like Claude Rains? A little bit, yeah. I was like, wow, he's kind of doing the, imp it's in the family, right? It's it's part of, uh, it's in the character's family, you know, once a griffin, always a griffin, I guess. I definitely get the impression that maybe there's a family temper or a mean streak that they share. And we definitely get to see see him reaching those limits of his patience in that scene. What does he have to celebrate? You know, like I'm here hard at work. I can't do it fast enough. And he wants to celebrate. But I love the effect shot of Jeffrey on the phone, just the hovering phone and the rocking chair. It almost remi <laughs> reminded me of like in Michael Mann's Manhunter when Hannibal's like on the phone and he's just got his feet up and kind of having a pleasant conversation. And meanwhile, he's just 
like horrible monster. Yeah, and that's where he is pretty much now. He's reached that point, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty much on the edge, if not like completely over it once they show up. Right. The next scene where they're all together sitting around the table is basically his reign of terror speech. It's so uncomfortable, man. Like, they just hit that so perfectly. Like, I feel like they directed this so well. One of the worst dinner parties in film history. Yeah, definitely. Because everyone is really uncomfortable. Like, it starts out, like, lighthearted enough. But very quickly, he starts to, like, have these delusions of grandeur. He's talking about, like, taking over the country. And suddenly, both Helen and Frank, the smiles are fading from their faces. He calls himself at one point Nemesis. Yes. It's like, wait a minute, like, what? You've got a name picked out, like, and it has so much connotation, and it's like, you're going to be the world's nemesis. It's He's like, I can just hide in boardrooms or hide in the office and hear everything going on behind the scenes and then use it again. It's like, dude, you are full on now. Yeah, so if you remember, Frank made a promise that if Jeffrey were to start to slide into madness, like he's doing right now, that he would confine him and, and try to keep him safe from himself and other people. And But of course, Jeffrey in this moment won't even entertain the idea that he's lost his mind. He's like, what about your friends? You know, this isn't, you know, it's not verbatim, but like the gist is kind of like, what about your friends? People care about you. We want to help you. And he's like, friends are nothing. You know, he's like, I'm going to have a cult or like, I'm going to have an <laughs> army. It's like, who needs friends when like everyone's going to fear me? And it's, you know, last resort time with this dude. Right. And so the plan, at least for the time being, is to drug his champagne and uh, at least get him unconscious so that they can tie him up because there's there ain't, there ain't no stopping him right now this doesn't quite work as planned frank has a little bit of a tantrum leaves the room but he does come back in his costume here he, like he changes his clothes right and he comes back looking like claude rains in the robe with the scarf yeah but but he doesn't have his bandages on right he's like the headless man yes. and it's so unnerving yes he's just kind of like this is me now like it or not i'm used to it i hope you get used to it too because i'm not going anywhere but they do manage to convince him to toast to you know world conquest or or whatever and uh and he's like why aren't you smiling and i love this like forced smile from both helen and frank it, it reminded me of like the terminator in t2 trying to smile but of course they successfully get him to drink the drugged champagne and get him tied up in the next room however that will be short-lived yes as they have jeffrey tied up he seems to have come back to his senses he's speaking calmly and coolly again and helen trying to get some order and keep jeff safe runs to get frank so meanwhile the cops have shown up and now you know they've got to do something about jeffrey jeffrey like i said is starting to come to he's starting to to, to make sense he's starting to seem lucid asks for a glass of water, and Frank gets him a glass of water, which gets thrown right back into his face, which allows for Jeffrey to wrestle him to the ground and free himself and escape. So with the cops right outside, Jeffrey has escaped arrest another time, and it immediately goes straight to Cobb, right? He's going to end this once and for all. Yeah, and pretty much until the end of the movie, Jeffrey's going to be represented as a floating gun in the air. Yes. <laughs> which is, like, there's so much about this that is unnerving. It's just something, like, so off about a gun just being there pointed at you 
just there. It's so freaky. I love it, though. Like, I think it works so well. Yeah, I mean, there are moments in this sequence where I do see the, the wire work. And then there are some where I don't. So, of course, it's always going to be impressive when I don't see the wires. But when I do, I, I notice there's, there's like a bunch of wires. They have wires in so many different directions to get this gun to move naturally. And I think this is another example of just really incredibly natural, impressive puppetry. But, but I do think it's brilliant that they get the gun under Richard's armpit, right? So they don't need the wire work anymore, right? They can just He can just hold on to it with his arm. It's, it's the simplest thing in the world. Oh, yeah. The concept of it is sold yeah. so hard for me that whatever they need to do to execute it, whatever, I'm not noticing that yeah. kind of stuff. And also, Cobb's reaction, like, he is doing some of the best acting to nothing that I've seen yet in these movies. His sort of, like, way he's walking as if there really is a gun uh -huh. stuck in his back and someone holding on, like, it's all there. There's even a moment in that sequence where he has left the room and he's coming down into, like, the foyer where he's been shoved forward just slightly. Yeah, that's the moment, yeah. It's so good. That looks like such like an accurate kind of dance move or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, is that guy a dancer or something? Because it's such a graceful, intentional trip up. Those are moments that like, you know, I, I think I've mentioned on this show in the past, you know, like I've done theater, you know, I did live performance, you know, through high school and college. And there were moments where I would have to do something sort of natural like that you know obviously not with an invisible character but like it's easy to overdo those sorts of things like overact and i think just he manages to keep it very subtle but still believable we never forget that there's an invisible man behind him ready to kill him at a second's notice so i love that i love his restraint there i think is what i'm trying to say <laughs> but jeffrey manages to get richard out of the house and has him drive over to spears's house where he has spears. So this might be like where a scene should have taken place. Like I, I, I can see maybe where this sh scene should exist. He probably stopped at Spears' house before he went to Richard's house, right? Or has he been tied up there this whole time? No, no, because I think he says he's been tied up for like a couple hours or at least been like on the chair in the noose for a couple of hours. Right, because we should explain like Spears is on a stool with a noose around his neck about to be hanged from the ceiling and like got a sock shoved in his mouth. and everything. Yes, so he's been hanged hanging out there for uh, a couple of hours, I believe. So this is like big confession scene. Spears has nothing, is no reason to lie anymore. He just wants to get away safely. And he just spills all of the beans, tells the whole story. Richard immediately like kicks out the stool from underneath. And as Jeffrey tries to save Spears from dying, Richard blows out the candle and puts them all on an even playing field. Like this is a trope that I feel like we've seen since where you have an invisible character and you shut the light off and now everybody's invisible, you know, like kind of a brilliant move on Richard's part here. So like, that's a very risky thing to do in a movie. Yes is like, we're going to have a minute of blackness. Like, there's going to be nothing on the screen. There's just going to be a black screen, and you're just going to hear it, like, sound effects of people scuffling. And I applaud them, you know? I think they really earned it. I was not expecting that to happen. And when it did, I was like, yes, that's very clever of Cobb to blow out the candle and, yeah, even playing field. Like, he's a very quick-thinking character, like, kicking the stool out Definitely. underneath of Spears, like, really on the ball. Granted, he's a, he's a murderous villain, but, like, he's good at it yeah oh for sure it's, it's a little bit of a cartoony move to have a bunch of action happen in like 
pitch blackness. But I also kind of love that they decided to have what is basically a, a fight scene happen with like only being able to see little pieces of it. Fortunately, it doesn't last too long. I could see them maybe maybe dragging this scene out a little too far, but they don't. Like it's clear what's going on and then it's over before it starts to feel like, okay, we get it, you know? I love this moment as, as they're having that fight in Spears' house, a bunch of these like co-workers show up and they're like assuming that Spears is drunk just going at it with like invisible elephants in his house. I think we see these guys at the coal mine, but in any case, they're, yeah, they're like, oh, he's just drunk on one of his rampages again. And then Richard bursts through the window, throws a piece of wood at Jeffrey, who's climbing through the window. Another one of those, like, objects bouncing off of uh, an invisible man here. And then this chase on foot leads straight to the colliery. And this is like the culmination of everything that we have seen all sort of thrown together in the same sequence. We've got these invisible man shots, this, the effect shots. We've got a large group of people doing a lot of, like, really selling this this invisible man just with their, their physicality yeah good crowd work yes groups of people just like i fully believe that there was an invisible dude pushing his way through this crowd just based on their performances i think all these actors are doing great work here i'm actually stunned by what i think is the climax we'll get a little coda to all of this too and and, and it basically is the climax here first of all all the action in this movie is like top notch and yes. that was a big surprise because like the previous movies aren't necessarily action-packed you know like there's stuff in it but they're not shot like this like this is shot like very modern lots of quick cuts and when they're not cutting quick for effect they're really letting it play out which i like very much so like it's cool how they burst out of the darkness of the inside and it's like a chase and they're racing through the plant and everything and i was really getting you know we dropped his name earlier on and like i don't think it's that crazy to bring him up again but i'm getting kind of a hitchcock vibe here with the way that he would sometimes stage the end of his films where they would be at a big important location that meant a lot where like maybe the crime already took place and we're back where we were from the everything is sort of circled back around to the beginning again and we're seeing it all in a new sort of light, yes. right? And and there's this great cliffhanging action going on and a huge crowd of people watching it and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is legit. Yeah, that's spot on. I, I love the Hitchcock comparison. I hadn't thought of it that way until you just mentioned it. They're really getting, I mean, just from a practical standpoint, Universal's really getting their money's worth out of this set. But like, what a perfect way for this whole thing to end up. You know, I mean, the murder that kicked off all of these events happened in this same coal mine. And to have everything end in a spectacular climax like this, I think is a brilliant move. Of course, in, in the scuffle, as Richard is, he's like on a, a mine cart that is headed up this ramp. And uh, he's struggling with Jeffrey, who's choking the life out of him. Samson manages to get a shot off that is a direct hit, hits Jeffrey somewhere. But Richard is not able to get to safety in time as the side of that mine cart is released at the top of the ramp. And in what is maybe our only real stunt of the movie, he is dropped like 40 feet. Yeah, it's aside from a couple like early wire work examples of dudes getting like pulled off of a porch early on. I couldn't believe they showed this in its entirety. I'm 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 surprised like we said it before like they were able to they're probably able to get 
this past the censors because A, it's the only death in a monster movie, and B, it happens to a murderer, like the guy who gets his comeuppance kind of thing. So I understand how it's here. It's just I did not expect it to be so graphic. To see that drop and it not be a dummy. Yeah, I was just not expecting it. And and it, it's, uh, it's very grandiose here at the end for what is kind of, you know, more of like a quiet mystery thing. Like they really go out in a bang here. Yeah, I just rewatched that moment and you're right. It wasn't a dummy. That was a real stuntman who was dropped, you know, pr- probably about 40 feet from that, that mine cart. So yeah, I, all, all the props to that guy for, for taking that fall. I mean, they sell it so well. I mean, clearly, you know, that's like foam rocks right, right, right. And, and whatever. And they're on a set and there's probably an airbag in it. But still, like, it looks great. Yeah. Oh, it looks wonderful. But yeah, right before we get to the next scene, we get the confession. Richard, he knows he's going to die. He admits to Helen that he killed Michael. Fortunately, Inspector Sampson is there to witness that confession as well. So now, you know, now we all know that Jeffrey is innocent, right? He's been he's been framed for this murder. But now we have to find him, right? He's been shot. Who knows where he is? We need to find him and bring him back from his invisibility. But I, so I love this little this little scene that he has with the scarecrow. You know, I mean, that's just pure classic Vincent Price. As he takes the clothes, the jacket, the pants, and the hat off the scarecrow. It almost felt like a poem or something, right? Like, me and the scarecrow. Almost, where, yeah. You know, and I envisioned bums during the Depression, right? Like, having to do stuff like this. Stealing clothes from a scarecrow so you don't freeze to death at night or whatever like that. Like, it was, it was a nice touch. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons this little scene plays so well now is because... It's Vincent Price, and you know he has a great speaking voice. I just, I just think about the serendipity of casting two invisible men who were unknown at the time they were cast, both having incredibly good speaking voices. But yeah, I think this scene is great just because, like in 2020, those of us who love Vincent Price can just enjoy him monologuing with a scarecrow. Yeah, yeah, it feels like um like something you'd hear on the radio, oh, right? Yeah. Like during the Mercury Theater yes. or something like that. <laughs> yes, yeah. This this scene is entirely Vincent. I mean, we we get some effect shots here too. It makes me wonder, just from a cost perspective, why they felt this scene was necessary. It's so poignant. Yeah, I'm just thinking from a practical perspective, you know, now they're just kind of throwing in effect shots. Maybe maybe they were just so good at effect shots that they're like, yeah, it's not a big deal. We can throw that in. I don't know. I, it just seems like they really wanted this scene in there and whatever it took, it was going to be there. And I, I, I love it. Yeah, same. So Jeffrey does make it back to the colliery. All roads lead back to this colliery here. And this is him in a full crowd scene. Yeah, out in the open. Yeah, yeah, exposed. He's, he's out and about now. You know, if they make another one, no one's going to forget this, right? right? Like, someone's got to get a picture of the clothes walking on their own. So now he is under the care of Frank, who is certain that he will die because he needs to perform surgery, but is unable to do so without Jeffrey being visible. But he does sort of ask the men of the coal mine, like, I need blood. Who's willing to donate blood? And they all are ready to to volunteer. You know, they all realize he's been innocent this whole time. He is well beloved among those men. There's no shortage of blood to donate. However, without the ability to do surgery, Jeffrey's almost certain to die. However, Frank, he got as far as he could with the antidote, and he believes there's a slight chance that it could work, probably a greater chance that it'll kill Jeffrey, but if he's going to die anyway, why not try to use it? And before he gets an opportunity to do so, he realizes that the blood transfusion was the antidote. 
it's kind of crazy he didn't consider that earlier when he drew his invisible blood. Like, I thought he'd for sure have a vial of his normal blood and he'd be dipping it together and be like, oh, the normal blood made the invisible blood visible again or whatever and stuff. But whatever, it, it all worked out in the end for him. I love, though, how even for Jeffrey... The beginning of the movie mirrors the end of the movie, so it was like, all right, in the beginning, you're going to be hanged, so you're going to die. So you might as well go invisible. You you might die, but you'll be alive longer, and you might be able to clear your name. Right. Okay, so like now he's cleared his name, and it's like, all right, you're going to die. <laughs> You've been shot, and you're bleeding internally, and we can't operate because we can't see you. And even if we could cut you open, we couldn't see your organs or any of that because we've established your blood and everything inside is invisible too. So it's like, screw it. Let's try the antidote. And then they're just like one step away from committing to that idea or whatever. And they're like, oh, no, the transfusion worked. It's, a, it's OK. Don't <laughs> worry about that. The only other instance I've ever heard of a transfusion reversing anything was in, um, well, I guess I don't want to spoil the movie. So never mind. <laughs> I think I know the movie you're talking about. You can tell me after we're done. But an interesting twist that it's kind of right in front of your face, you know, the way the invisible man is, but you just can't see it. Uh, and then, of course, we get the reveal. It's similar to the original Invisible Man, except this time our, our hero is alive. And we see Vincent Price at his, like, maybe the youngest I've ever seen him. Yeah, and I love his expression when he kind of sees his hand again for the very first time. Uh, but we also have to talk about the incredible transformation when, when he becomes visible again and, and the layers that they go through. I just thought that was so sweet, like such a cool concept. They used a similar effect in uh, the original Invisible Man as well, but I think it goes a little further here. Yeah, they didn't show so many stages, I believe, where it's like, we're going to see the circulatory system, like all of his veins and everything come into play, all the bones, and then like so many layers, I felt like so many more layers this time. For all the ways that this movie parallels its predecessor that I don't like, I do enjoy the way this one ends on a similar note, but sort of the happy version. You know, we get the happy ending. Our hero has been established as a good person, whereas Jack Griffin, we, we never really understood him as a good-hearted person. We only saw him murder, you know, hundreds of people. So I was happy to see this hero have a happy ending. So I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add? Just that... This was uh, a great first watch. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad I finally got to see this one. You know, again, my, my only gripe was just the stuff about Vincent Price and stuff, you know? At first, I wish there was the scene before he became invisible until we get the first scene when he is invisible. And it's like, oh, well, this is the scene. Okay, we're getting it now. Fine, great, cool. Uh, so, like, I have very few issues with this, and I just think Universal's doing an amazing job with its sequels and its part threes and, and everything and continuing their series. Yeah, they're they're definitely... I don't want to say they're better than I expected, okay? Because that sounds like I wasn't <laughs> expecting them to be good. Let's just say I like them a lot more than I thought I would, right? Yeah. Like, I knew there was going to be something in each of these that I was going to be attracted to, but I was not expecting to really come out being like, yeah, these are all good. This one ranks pretty high for me. Uh, I mean, the character, the, the whole concept of invisibility, uh, obviously, is is very cool to me. But, um, you know, aside from the moments where this re is really very derivative of the first film, I you know, aside from all that, I, I love 
the new stuff in this. I love that they sort of switch up the genre. I love that the character is like trying to figure out who killed his brother and framed him. Like I love all that stuff that it plays like a noir. So I think for all the stuff that is derivative, I think there's enough in here that holds my attention and keeps me engaged. And uh, certainly the, the in-camera effects are definitely uh, the best we've seen so far. So yeah, I think that this... Um, definitely would rank very high for me in my overall overall ranking of these with that i think it's time for us to vanish for another month but don't worry we will return on friday august 27th to discuss the mummy's hand in the meantime you can follow us on twitter at monster made pod on instagram and facebook at the monsters that made us and you can email us at the monsters that made us at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at dan cologne and mike where can listeners find you you can also find me on twitter at the underscore mikester and then all the other shows i'm on at the network at cageclub.me facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on twitter and instagram all right and before we go i'd like to take uh, a moment to give a quick shout out to jeff c for becoming a patreon supporter so we've got a couple patreon supporters if you'd like to become a patreon supporter as well you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes that helps other people uh, discover the show so that would be a big help and we can't forget about our t-shirts on t public you can find the link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bio for all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. <laughs>